When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan? Oh, I guess we just need to uh, revise our entire Mookie Betts discussion from last week. I think we're going to do an entire podcast on Mookie Betts this week. So uh, get excited, listeners. I mean, Jeter Downs is a legit prospect, and I'm happy that you got a little bit more for Mookie and David Price, but yeah, Verdugo's great. And, and the number four uh, catching prospect Connor in your minor Wong. league system. Connor Wong is a good prospect. A so totally, you, you, totally your number four catching prospect, not well, yeah. one of the Dodgers' top 30 overall I mean, prospects. I'd, I'd give you Austin Barnes if I could, but I don't think you want a guy that hits below the Mendoza line and has no power and, and a mitt made of iron. No, no, I do not. Anyway, we've already scared off 95% of our listeners, so let's get to, say, Headlines? <laughs> This week, Viacom CBS is planning a massive expansion of CBS All Access as the newly remerged company looks to inject some of Viacom's brands and other CBS assets into broadening out the streamer best known for Star Trek and The Good Fight. Speaking of CBS, the network is in early talks to bring back CSI Crime Scene Investigation for a limited series celebrating the procedural's 20th anniversary. Original star William Peterson is among those being eyed for the update, which will be set like the mothership itself, in Las Vegas. In new series orders, Stars has handed out a pickup to not one, not two, but three power spinoffs. That's right, three more power spinoffs. That's in addition to the Mary J. Blige spinoff, so there will be a total of four new power TV series coming to Stars. Look, if you got a brand, steer into it, and steer into it aggressively. That would be aggressive, yes. Elsewhere, Disney Plus has given the green light to a new take on The Mighty Ducks, starring Lauren Graham, with Emilio Estevez returning to reprise his role as Coach Gordon Bombay. Quack, quack, Leslie. Quack, quack. The streamer has also ordered a new take on Tom Hanks' 1989 feature Turner and Hooch, starring Nickelodeon grad Josh Peck. Which, if we're being perfectly frank, is still a less good movie than K-9 starring Jim Belushi, but you don't hear anyone saying they're going to bring back K-9 starring Jim Belushi. So what the heck? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is basically Disney's entire brand for the streamer. It's IP, IP, IP. So color, color nobody's surprised with these two announcements. And in renewal news this week, Amazon has renewed its longest-running scripted original Bosch for a seventh and final season. Between this and whatever is or is not happening with Ray Donovan, it has been a tough couple weeks for your father or your uncle's favorite TV shows. Uh, though Liev Schreiber has given hope, so yeah, we know nothing. No details beyond his Instagram post, though. Also, Epix is bringing back Forrest Whitaker's uh, Godfather of Harlem for season two. NBC has picked up Superstore for its sixth season. That's a show you should watch if you do not. ABC has handed out a fourth season to The Good Doctor. And Sex Education will return for a third season on Netflix. I am very happy to hear about Sex Education returning for season three. That is probably one of my favorite shows currently airing. Well, that is, that is a lot of good news for a lot of different kinds of TV audiences. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Leading off this week, pilot season. Whee! 
number one. It is time to take our first look at what the broadcast networks are prepping for the 2021 season on the pilot front. And if you have not been following Leslie's steady string of missives, we're now going to give some of the highlights from that. But up first, let's treat our listeners like they're five. Talk a bit about what pilot season is and what it means. Well, just to be clear, we're not treating anyone like they're five, Dan. Let's just do a quickie on how development works. So for the uninitiated, it's basically networks will buy a script. Someone will come in, a writer and a producer will come in with an idea. They'll pitch it to networks. The networks will give varying degrees of a commitment, meaning a script order, a pilot production commitment, a series commitment, or a straight-to-series order based on how much they like and think of the script. So script orders will then go, if, you know, the hundred networks order hundreds of comedies and dramas every season. The good ones rise to the top and those get what's called a pilot order, meaning they will actually produce and cast one episode. And of that, you you enter pilot season. And this is the annual time of year, usually around between January through March, where pilots get picked up and cast and directors are hired and, and production starts and they build sets and all this other stuff happens. And and of those, usually, you know, as of like five, 10 years ago, there were upwards nearly 100 across all of the broadcast networks. That's ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox and the CW. This year, volume is way down. Right now, as we record this, we're looking at a total of 55 pilots, 30 dramas and 25 comedies. And that's down from 66 this time last year. And we should note that last year was an all-time low, and it's just getting lower, basically, as these networks are showing a little bit more patience with their current shows and realizing that it costs them far more money to produce and shoot and market a, a new series than it does to maybe support a rookie show coming back for a second season and maybe giving it a little bit more time to perform. And this is such a crazy, expensive and inefficient process that for years people have been trying to think of kind of workarounds. And, you know, Kevin Riley famously said the pilot season was over. And then I mean, he came out <laughs> on the TCA stage with a graphic and a tombstone that said RIP pilot season. And Everyone thought he was crazy then, and now you're starting to see Fox, which, of course, he's no longer there, but now you're seeing Fox Entertainment and ABC kind of expand on that and saying, we're going to be open during the traditional pilot season, but we're not going to close our doors throughout the year. ABC Entertainment President Carrie Burke called it that the network is going to be open for what, what she's calling a second cycle, meaning in the summer. So a lot of these times, you know, like, look, 55 new shows are not going to get picked up across the five broadcast networks. Of those, I think a third or, or fewer will go to series. And that means that a lot of actors who book pilots are going to become available as soon as the summer, which means if ABC's got another script that they're working on, they have a brand new crop of talent to, to choose from at a time that's far less competitive. So right now you've got the broadcast networks all competing for the same directors and talent and sets and stages and below the line folks. And they're competing not only with themselves and other broadcast networks, but cable networks and streamers. And we all, as we talk about every week on this show, the number of streamers is just growing rapidly and the amount of content that they're ordering is just through the roof. So let's get to a couple of the trends that we are looking at in pilot season. Uh, up first, it seems to me as if there have been a lot more direct to series orders already. Talk about what sense that makes and what's been ordered direct to series already. Yeah, so so straight to series orders are definitely up this year. We've already got six landing slots on the schedule for next year at the broadcast networks. And this is a trend this year because you're seeing 
in some cases, it's a, it's kind of a slam dunk. ABC going straight to series on a cop drama from David E. Kelly is probably a, one of the biggest no brainers of the season. It's David E. Kelly. It, it's that thought that brought us Brotherhood of Poland, New Hampshire. <laughs> um, obviously, that's not to say that you can't have a miss if it's a straight to series order. A lot of people may remember Terra Nova, which was picked up straight to series at Fox and, of course, became one of the biggest bombs of the last decade. And... You know, the reason that you're seeing these is it's usually because of the auspices like David E. Kelly or the premise. NBC ordered a comedy straight to series called Young Rock from Dwayne The Rock Johnson about his childhood and growing up in Hawaii. And he will be in every episode of that show. That's a no brainer. The CW handed out its first straight to series orders, which we've mentioned in previous podcasts with Superman and Lois, one of the uh, Arrowverse spinoffs and Walker, Texas Ranger starring Supernatural's um, Jared Padalecki. And what's interesting there is... Those are the first ever straight to series orders for the CW. And part of why we're seeing, I think, this uptick is because these are ways that the broadcast networks are starting to safeguard against a potential writer strike, which could shut down writers rooms and film writers as soon as April 30th. So if you order something straight to series now, not only are you producing that pilot, but you can open a writer's room and bang out multiple scripts between now and the end of April when the current contract expires. Yeah, we're looking, as you've already mentioned, got Rocker, Texas Ranger, and you've got Lois and Clark or Superman and Lois or whatever it's going to be. There's there's a lot of, once again, IP that's everywhere. So talk a bit about where we stand on our culture of reboots, remakes and adapted IP. Yes. Well, one, some of the other straight to series orders are there is a show called Clarice, which is a Silence of the Lambs sequel from Alex Kurtzman set up at CBS. And then a Lincoln Lawyer update also at CBS from David E. Kelly, who winds up going back to broadcast after years in the streaming world. And if we haven't mentioned it recently, you should totally check out our podcast interview with David E. Kelly, where he talked about his feelings about leaving broadcast behind and apparently being ready to go back again. <laughs> I mean, he's had like it's like his third act. I mean, the guy's incredible. He's he's a TV legend and it's really exciting to see him doing not one but two different shows at broadcast for two different networks. Elsewhere, ABC and on the pilot stage has a 30-something sequel featuring four original cast members. It's called 30-something else, and I'm not making that up. CBS has a new take on The Equalizer starring Queen Latifah. NBC has a half-hour adaptation of Kevin Hart comedy Night School, and the CW is rebooting Kung Fu from a little slacker producer called Greg Berlanti, um, who's teaming with Blindspot creator Martin Giro for that. And for the second year in a row, the CW is still trying to really make The Lost Boys a thing, and that's from iZombie creator Rob Thomas. So they shot a pilot last year. It didn't go. came close. They're very committed to the IP. This is, you know, it's from CBS Studios, who own the original movie. So it's going back to that franchise, and this will be the second pilot, but yet third script overall as they really attempt to make something out of this one. I have no idea why they keep going back to that well, but we haven't gotten a second shot at the post-apocalyptic Little Women adaptation. That to me is, <laughs> it, that that is my holy grail for shows I, I want to see. But do you want to see that on broadcast, Dan? I don't know. Hypothetically, who knows? I just want to see it exist. That's I want to see I'm... that on FX. Yeah. And before we transition into our next segment, uh, what's happening over at Fox, where they are, of course, in year two of new Fox and figuring out their position in, in the current world? What are they up to? Well, they, like most of the other broadcast networks, their volume is down as of the time we record this. Last year, they had 13 pilots. This year, they've got eight. I think they may add one more to that. But that's, you know, look, every network except for the CW and NBC is down year to year. And, you know, they I think Fox probably has the biggest swing 
thematically of everything that's in the works at the broadcast networks this season. And it's an untitled drama about a substitute teacher who teams with three film students to attempt a shot for shot reenactment of the Goonies. So let that sink in for a second. So it's three young kids and a substitute teacher trying to to shoot a reenactment of the Goonies, which is, I mean, a great movie, if you ask me. But yeah, that's it's it's pretty out there. The log line is kind of crazy. Elsewhere, ABC is looking to Grey's Anatomy boss Krista Vernoff to bring new life to Aaron Brockovich's life story with a drama starring Katie Segal and John Corbett. That's super interesting to me. I mean, Aaron Brockovich won an Oscar, so maybe this is there's a week to week procedural or drama here. And I think yeah, having a show about a strong woman from Christopher Vernoff, who's running both Grey's Anatomy and Station 19, I, I'm here for that. So that's probably my favorite pick of the, of, the, of the lot this year. Well, for more details on what's happening over at Fox during pilot season, I believe we should move to our next segment. That's right. Number two. Up second, we've talked about the pilot season trends, but joining the show this week to talk about the network's point of view on pilot season is Fox Entertainment President Michael Thorne. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So we just did a whole segment about what pilot season's like and and the numbers and how volume is down and how batshit crazy this time of year is. But I wonder for executives, what is this time of year like for you guys? It's incredibly exciting. And the way we look at it is filled with opportunity. With the success we're having this season, you know, we're coming into development and next season with a lot of certainty and we think opportunity. So we're going into this pilot season looking to complement our current schedule. And I think you'll see in the pilots we're picking up bold risk-taking concepts, betting on high-end talent, and really looking at what kind of voices and concepts can help us break through and in Pierce culture. And so if you were here walking the halls with us right now, I think you would see and feel a lot of enthusiasm for the, um, for the projects that we're moving forward with. But in a larger sense, you know, for an executive during pilot season, not specifically at Fox, but in a broader sense. But is this time of year just completely crazy or because the volume is down this year, it's a little less so? Well, I think it's always crazy as we're moving into all year round development. You know, we were talking about it being full cycle. We're ordering pilots now. We're in the middle of developing dramas and comedy and animation off cycle. And so there's always a certain amount of controlled chaos. Um, I think many of us in this business, I'm sure it's the same as for you guys. Uh, I I prefer to live in that kind of craziness than um, a relaxed environment. I don't know what to do with myself. So even as you see us being more targeted in our ordering of pilots, we're still hearing pitches. We're still discussing strategy for our programming. And for us, we think it's one of our of our strengths right now. So for example, you, I know you guys see with many platforms are ordering up to 50 new series. For us, we're being so targeted on what pilots we order, what series we order, that you have an incredible chance of success in getting on the air if you, uh, if if in fact one of these pilots uh, is ordered here. And secondarily, that kind of targeted approach, allowing us to be a little bit nimble in our choices, 
is a great way for us to access talent. So with Carla this year, a ser comedy series we ordered off cycle, the fact that we're offering this more curated approach allowed us to win something that was extremely competitive. Yeah, and that's, of course, the, the Mayan Bialik comedy that's now called... Um, Call Me Cat. Call Me Cat. Um, right. Correct. Yep, exactly. Well, I'm curious, as you talk about sort of the need to find complementary pieces to the things that work this season, what is the balance you have to strike between things that match what the brand is that you guys are building out in this new incarnation, but also still finding things that maybe you don't have, you know, filling gaps that you're noticing in, in the schedule in terms of demographics you're not reaching or audiences, et cetera? Great question. On the drama side, for example, we feel like we have real momentum with two of our new character-driven procedurals like Prodigal Son and 911 Lone Star. And if you look at some of the pilots we've ordered in the past couple weeks, you'll notice that we are looking at projects, The Cleaning Lady, our film reenactment project um, where we're using Goonies as a way to tell um, character stories. The Big Leap and, and, and even uh, Blood Relative, what you're seeing with those choices are a combination of, okay, we, we, we've launched these two procedurals with real success, and what we're hoping to find in our next wave is a culture-piercing character drama, something that feels urgent, that feels noisy both in, in concept, but that can still work for a broadcast audience. So it's a little bit like I was saying in the beginning, you know, where we do have some certainty on our schedule, we feel like. And so now, to your point, how do we complement it? And on the drama side, it's coming in the choice of serialized character drama. On the animation side, coming into the, or finishing the year last year, we ordered Housebroken. And, you know, we have a strong lineup of family comedies as part of our animation lineup. They're all distinct in their own way, but they're all clearly, you know, unique family comedies. And so we're actively talking about how do we expand that brand and build upon it. And so with Housebroken, taking this very irreverent look at, you know, a group of animals who have a friendship, out, you know, when their owners have gone to work or go about whatever their day and look at the neuroses of humanity and the dysfunctions that we see in our lives and put them on our, our, our best friends, our pets, felt like a great opportunity for us. And, and it's something we haven't done before. And when you look at comedy, we've had real success with Last Man Standing. Uh, and we're really proud of that show and outmatched as well. But you also see us looking beyond those multicam family comedies also to take some chances. We, you saw it with the Moody's doing a holiday event comedy. And now that we've ordered our, this comedy, this country, based on the you know, BAFTA award-winning BBC comedy, uh, which takes a look at young Americans in the middle of the country. We've seen a look at young people in a very coastal point of view, but exploring small town American life through the point of view of two flawed, narcissistic young people feels like both a exciting choice to make and, and something that no one else is doing. And when you're in the hands of Paul Feig and Jenny Bix, it becomes something we hope is 
really surprising and, and of course, hilarious. So it's a long way of saying the pilots that we're ordering right now are simply just an opportunity for us to, to build on some of the momentum that, that we already have without replicating anything we already have, have on our air. Um, and, and hoping that each one feels different than our other shows, of course, but also unlike anything else on television. In a larger sense, you know, speaking not just for Fox, but as broadcasters in general, the competition for top talent, be it actors, directors, writers, producers, etc., but specifically this time of year, pilot season with actors, the competition is outrageous because not only are you competing with, you know, four other broadcast networks, but cable networks and streamers and a, an increasing number of streaming services, all of whom are casting all at the same time. How are you seeing the broadcast networks and Fox really, you know, try and land those top talent? Like how much harder is it for a broadcast network to land a household name, a star who's a household name? And how is that impacting the salaries that you're paying these guys and gals? First of all, you're so right. I mean, it's the most competitive landscape we've ever seen. It feels like it's only going to become more competitive. And that's where our philosophy, and I, I, I understand why, why you're asking this question, and I, I know everybody says great material gets great talent, but it does. And so that's why we bet on the voices that are behind some of our projects. So I'll give you an example. We just started casting this country. I don't have any specific casting to announce yet, but... If you have an incredible script from Jenny Bix and Paul Feig directing, and that incoming phone call is exciting for agents and actors to get. And in this case, there are some roles that uh, we will cast some familiar faces because there are some characters in their 40s. And then there's going to be discoveries and that because there's younger roles. But the response that we've gotten on that script uh, both because of the quality of the writing, the excitement around the format, and the auspices involved, is been exceptional. You're absolutely right to point out how competitive it is. We have no choice but to compete at the highest level when it comes to salaries. There are actors who, for example, don't want to do procedurals or sometimes don't want to do uh, a multicam, they prefer to do a single cam comedy. But our methodology is to order scripts when they're ready, whether it's now or off cycle. And those scripts, we hope, are from the highest level auspices. Last year was also unbelievably competitive. And we were able, in, in our minds, to, to land some incredible talent like Kim Cattrall and John Slattery and Michael Sheen. Um, and Stephen Dorff, who also got a huge stake in the ownership of, of Deputy, which was a, one of the season's biggest ones. And so one of the things that we've been doing with our partners, to, to your point about Stephen Dorff, is, as you, you've heard us talk about this, we are, because we're independent, you know, you know, we're in business with pretty much everyone. And, you know, in this pilot cycle, we're continuing our relationship with Warner Brothers and 20th. We've added Paramount. I'm proud to announce we've ordered our first sidecar project, as you know, which is fantastic. Um, sidecar, of course, being your, in your new internal yes. content. Yeah, our internal studio with Gail Berman. 
And so just as we've expanded our creative deal making with our partners, we work with them just like everyone else around town is doing to get creative deal making with actors. But the truth is these actors and actresses are incredibly smart. They're very sophisticated about scripts um, and who they work with. And so even though it's crazy and chaotic, they want, I would imagine most actors want a role that's undeniable, that's on the page, and that they're in the, in the care of an incredible creative team. And we have found that if we continue to, to bet on that talent, we've been able to get access to the actors that we hope for. And at the same time, and, and I, you're going to, I'm sure you'll make a joke about this, but stars are important in this, in this landscape of, you know, over 600 shows. If anyone said that stars weren't important, they would be lying. But at the same time, we all know that television makes stars and reinvents stars. And so that's the other strategy that we employ, which is let's go chase these, these, these incredible names uh, to, to play these complicated characters. And at the same time, we are looking at who are the next people that we're gonna break who become the face of our, of our network. And as you said earlier, when you were talking about like 911 being a big hit, when you get those big hits, there's nothing, and for us, in our mind, there's nothing sweeter than a big broadcast hit because of the reach of, and size of that audience. You know, we were thrilled at the response. This isn't about a pilot, I know, but we were thrilled at the response that our season premiere episodes of 911 had across the country and for our audience. And everyone was talking about those um, tsunami episodes. And I, I do think that while maybe there is a touch of a stigma about broadcast television, at, at the same time, the draw of being part of a Empire or 911 or This Is Us it is still a powerful draw. You know, wrapping up, you know, one of the big things that everyone is kind of keeping an eye on right now is the potential for a writer strike, which could happen as soon as April 30th, which, of course, is right before series pickups and upfronts. What is Fox doing to take any safeguards or to prepare for a potential writer strike and pencils down? And how might pilot season be impacted by that? The big picture answer is and, and is overall as a network, our goal is to combine the best of scripted, live events, sports, unscripted. And so we have a deep bench of, when you look at us holistically, we, we have a deep bench of programming to get us through a strike in the short term. And of course, we're looking at acquisitions and other things uh, that, that could fill a hole in our scripted programming should we need it. And the acquisitions, of course, being like Canadian imports and things like that. Yeah, or something shot internationally that's already and, and there's nothing that we've seen yet that we're ready um, to jump on. Uh, but we continue to look at material and it's very possible in a short period of time that maybe we find something we like. Uh, that being said, we're not rushing into orders to order a series to have something. We're not green lighting a series that's not quite ready um, just to have something in the event that there's a there's a strike. Um, 
it feels like the winds are blowing towards a potential strike and and that will absolutely cause delays in all of the pilots that we're talking about right now, um, which would be un unfortunate. But I do think it's it is one of the beautiful things about being, you know, all year round full cycle is the fact that, like, if we find something that's undeniable, um, uh, we're still going to bet on it, whether there's a, you know, a strike or not. Of course, we're hopeful that there's there's not a strike. But if we end up with this pilot cycle where we have, you know, a drama or two or a comedy or two that we feel are undeniable, we'll still feel it's undeniable wherever that negotiation, you know, between the, the you know, with the Writers Guild takes us. Well, we thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Michael, and back to the pilot season hamster wheel for you. <laughs> and you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. And speaking of the plans the networks are making for a potential writer strike, we are joined by THR's senior writer, Bryn Sandberg, who is going to break down just some of what is going on behind the scenes as we eye what may or may not be happening come April or May. Number three. Welcome back to the show, Bryn. Thank you for having me. So we just talked about the uptick in, in straight to series orders and Michael Thorne mentioned picking up foreign TV shows and acquisitions. And you reported this, a great story for the for the magazine and for the website. What are some of the networks doing to kind of safeguard against a potential writer strike? What are some of the other things that they're doing? Well, I would say that the biggest thing that we're seeing is that multiple networks are in active conversations with showrunners and writers about foregoing their typical months-long hiatus between seasons and instead just rolling immediately into the next season. So what that allows the, the networks to do is to keep scripts flowing in so that they have more material that they can either attempt to produce in the event of a strike or have it ready to go and, and hit the ground running when, when a strike would be over. And we're also seeing a lot of renewals being doled out earlier than usual. Right. This week we had Superstore and mm -hmm. The Good Doctor. Mm -hmm. And one network executive I spoke to said that, you know, these are typically talks that they would be having, you know, leading up to the upfronts in May, but they're doing it so much earlier because they want to just keep things moving. And then you're also seeing outlets like the CW handing out straight to series orders for the first time, um, like they did with Superman and Lois and Walker, Texas Ranger, which I believe you wrote about, Leslie. And, and elsewhere, where CBS ordered nine additional episodes of mid-season drama MacGyver, and that, we were told by sources, are episodes that they're going to hold back in the event of a strike so that they'd have fresh content to put on the air. So that, that's another thing. And then over at Corporate Sibling Showtime, they actually cut down the second season of Drama City on a Hill from 10 episodes to eight so that they wouldn't come up against a strike and wouldn't, you know, couldn't air an incomplete season. So we're seeing all sorts of, of strategies being employed. And then, of course, there's the... There's, you know, investing more heavily in non-U.S. development. There's, you know, looking for non-WGA writers, which is something we're hearing is happening more on the film side of things. And then you also have, you know, people dusting off passed over scripts and, and taking a second look at things they otherwise might have not been interested in. I just wanted to follow up on one thing that, that you said. Uh -huh. So you, you said possibly produce some of these episodes. So in the event of a writer's strike... Will the other guilds, do we know yet how if the Directors Guild or if SAG will allow their union members to continue to work or will they could they come out and support 
of the rioters and the whole town shuts down. Mm-hmm. That we don't know. It's it's too early to tell. I mean, we don't even know if there is going to be a strike, of course. These are talks that are happening and, and executives, writers, you know, managers, agents, lawyers, everyone's trying to figure it out and prepare themselves as best as they can. And, and you know, if you talk to the writers, um, I know uh, David A. Goodman, who's the WGA West president, told us for the story, you know, it's really too early to tell if, you know, we're, we're going to be prepared to go to battle if we need to. But this is like asking, you know, in the first quarter of a football game, if it's going to go into sudden death overtime, like nobody, nobody knows. So I do think that if, if the 2007-2008 strike, you know, is any indication, you know, there were actors who were on the picket lines with writers and who did refuse to, to, to go on set um, when studios were trying to produce things. Well, before we go any further, I think it's important to talk a little bit about what the central issues would be in this strike. What are we looking at? What are the writers wanting? What are the studios offering? Where are we on that? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, it's a lot of these issues sort of center around compensation in the streaming era, where we're seeing, you know, back end is, is eliminated. Back end, of course, being the profits that a creator can make in a show's success. Correct. And, and we're seeing, you know, fewer seasons of shows, fewer episodes. Um, there's issues relating to span, which is essentially, you know, how much writers are paid over a period of time for writing episodes. So those are all and these are issues that sort of we've seen come about as a result of the rise of streaming services like Netflix, where, you know, they're not they're not ordering 22 episodes of a drama. It's eight episodes or 10 episodes. And then those shows aren't being sold in syndication like a broadcast show would traditionally. And, and you know, as someone who's married to a writer, when you get a residual check, because a network re-airs your episode, it's a nice thing to come home to. But if you have a show on streaming, there aren't, you don't get those. So that's, I think, you know. It's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. Those are the main ones. And those are the, those are the items that, you know, have been up for debate in previous negotiations. I think one of the new ones that we're seeing, because the WGA just recently last week, in fact, voted on their pattern of demands, which is essentially, you know, their priorities in, in the studio negotiations. And, and one of those, one of those issues was, sort of bringing in their their feud with the the agents mm-hmm. into you know the 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 studio turf war and it would require um, signatories to not work with agencies that haven't signed the WGA's code of conduct and that of course meaning the the writers don't want agencies packaging stuff and basically agencies acting as studios mm-hmm. so it, they see it as a big conflict of interest so now this is all of this is all being compounded into this new uh, negotiations with the studios so what about streaming services are they in the same boat or could they strike a, a deal of their own with the well with the interestingly so netflix is the the only major player that's not a part of the a- amptp which is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. So that's the group of studios. So Netflix could theoretically, and there are conversations about this, could strike their own deal. They did it with SAG last summer. They did it. They're currently in talks um, with IOTSE, the uh, below the line labor union, to do their own deal there. So that that's definitely a possibility. Um, but But as far as the other streamers, I mean, they're definitely vulnerable, just like the broadcast networks are in the event of a strike. Of course, they're not beholden to the same you know, schedules that, that, that networks are, but they need content. And, and this, this is coming at a time when, you know, in the quote unquote streaming wars, you know, we're seeing new entrants like HBO Max and Peacock that are supposed to launch around the same time that the, this contract is up April and May. Yeah. Yeah. May 1st. And, 
And so they're in desperate need of content to establish themselves and get new subscribers. And then you have Netflix over here trying, you know, fighting to maintain their dominance in this increasingly competitive landscape. So moral of the story is everyone needs content (laughs) and who produces content? Writers. And so not that there's ever a good time for a strike, but the stakes are definitely high this time. And we're seeing some signs of streamers being concerned, like at Netflix, for example, multiple sources said that, that they moved up some of their writers' rooms that were initially supposed to start in January and they moved them up to, you know, November, December so that they could get those rooms going and bank scripts by the end of April. Um, so that that's one way that we're seeing that. And of course we have to, it's worth noting that a lot of these issues that the writers have stem from these streaming services, mm-hmm. you know, coming oh, uh, yeah. coming oh, into yeah, play. And, 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 and people have noted how ironic it would be if Netflix were to strike their own deal with the WGA, given, you know, how much, you know, what an offender they've been of some of these issues. And this is all happening as we still don't really have a resolution to the thing with the writers who fired their agents back several months ago. How is that impacting this entire process? Well, one of, one of the things that we've seen is even with the, the WGA vote on the pattern of demands last week, they had like record turnout, like compared to the number of um, it was I think it was double the number of people who voted in 2017. And they voted, you know, 91%, you know, in favor, only 9% said no. So we're actually seeing a real active membership. And we're seeing writers who are really engaged with these issues and want to, you know, keep up to pace and, and be involved. And I think that that's something that, and this was something I believe Mike Schur noted in our story, that he's seeing that as well. And he thinks that that is the direct result of, you know, these conversations with agencies and and what they've been going through there, that that writers want to you know, stay engaged and know what the issues are and and make sure they vote and have their say. Yeah. I mean, it basically is that in summary of all the things that that are going on right now, it's that the television industry is changing faster than I think anyone can keep up with, let alone agents and studios and writers and reporters and critics, Dan. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, Bryn, thank you so much for joining us. This is an excellent segment. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Joining us this week from the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills are the showrunners of Netflix's Lock and Key, the long-anticipated adaptation of Joe Hill's beloved supernatural comic series. Carlton Cuse is, of course, the creator of The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. and co-creator of shows including Bates Motel, The Strain, Jack Ryan, and a little show called Lost. Meredith Averill spent three years writing and producing on The Good Wife and created the CW Starcrossed before executive producing and writing on Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Yes, good to see you guys. Well, let's start with Lock and Key. Look, this has been a show that's been in the works for a decade. Um, there were feature film takes. 12 years, takes. actually, but, you know, <laughs> who's counting a year or two? <laughs> but, like, you know, take us back. The first attempt at doing this for TV was 2011 and a Fox pilot that didn't get picked up, but yet screened at Comic-Con. And you can still kind of find on the Internet, but... Have you guys talked to anyone who was involved with that, Josh Friedman or Alex Kurtzman, like yes. when you came in to do this? Yes. I mean, I, I mean, Alex is a friend of mine. I mean, he's incredibly gracious about it, but I think it's, you know, it's, he loved the property too, and I think was frustrated that it never got made. And he told me a couple of years ago that it, that of all the things that he's been involved with in his career, that Lock and Key is the one that got away. Yeah, and it's just you know it's hard getting anything made, and and maybe for a while this project was especially cursed, but. 
I think at the end of this long and winding road, we landed in a good place. I mean, I'm very proud of the show that Meredith and I made, and I feel like maybe we learned some lessons along the way, and we had some good fortune at the end to land with Netflix, I think, at the right time, at the right moment. They were very supportive of what we wanted to do, and so... I mean, I think at the end, um, all that matters is, is the show good? And I think we're really happy with the way the show came out. Well, in the transition from Hulu to Netflix, you guys had to do a full recast other than one actor, I believe, right? Really two. Yeah. Yeah. Who was the other actor? I know the actor who played Bodie was one the of actor, them. But... Yes. We, we, there is an actor named Thomas Mitchell Barnett who actually played Rufus in the Hulu version, and he plays Sam Lesser. Huh. In, in our version, um, he's fantastic. How did you sort of realize that you would have to do that? And when you had that opportunity, was it an, oh God, now we have to recast an entire young cast again, this is gonna be horrible, or oh yay, this is gonna be fun, we have an opportunity to dot, dot, dot? I think that once we got to Netflix, we steered the show in a different direction, really much more towards fantasy. I think the Hulu version was more of a horror-oriented version. Um, we had Annie Muschietti, who directed the Hulu version. And I think that Netflix, you know, obviously their, their sort of paradigm show was Stranger Things, and I think they really embraced the comic and the kids. And, you know, once you start leaning into this as a storyteller and you start pulling threads, everything changes. And so it kind of made sense to recast the show. Um, you know, the type, the story we were telling was different. We had a different pilot. We started going down a different road. And so it sort of demanded a new cast. Well, tonally, how do you kind of quantify the difference or the step from horror to fantasy? What, what did that actually entail? I mean, it's sort of a delicate balance. It's a nice proportion that we had to find the Hulu pilot, especially having been directed by Annie Muschietti, maybe of course, who had done it, led with horror. There was much more of a horror element to it. The first 15 minutes are the attack, is the Sam Lesser murder of Rendell. And so we ended up restructuring our series a little bit in that you actually just see snippets of that murder throughout the first few episodes. So you're not kind of in living in that assault for the first 20 minutes, which tonally tells you this is what the show is going to be and kind of gives you this impression that the show is going to be much more horror than it than it actually is. So I think for us, it was leaning into the fantasy elements in that Bodhi is really your eyes in in the pilot. I think that really helped as well, because you're you're moving around Key House when he's has his like wheelies on and he's kind of wheeling around the house. You're kind of discovering things with him and you're discovering the well house with him. And I think that really helps set the tone and 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 sells the fantasy of the show in a way that sets up the rest of the season. And was that announced as sort of a shining homage right from the beginning? It, it, it really was. And Joe, yeah. and Joe fully embraced that, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to go back and talk about the, the transition from Hulu to Netflix. It's something that I hadn't really seen before. You know, from what I recall of reporting it, it was everyone at Hulu wanted to make the show. Joel Stillerman, who was running the creative there at the time, everyone on his team, it was unanimous. And then you guys kind of got caught with a bit of a regime change. Stillerman was out. Randy Freer came in, and then, of course, the whole Disney of, of it all, the transition of Hulu becoming a Disney brand. And then WME set up screenings for it, which I've never seen in my career. What was that process like for you guys? I mean, that's 
Like to be so close, especially on a property with such a, a, a crazy backstory. Well, it was, you know, it was frustrating because we were just a few weeks from starting production on the series for Hulu and there was a lot of support internally and, um, you know, what exactly happened at the, the highest levels of Hulu, I, you know, I'm not even sure myself, but there was, we found ourselves, you know, out on the street with our show and it was a moment to kind of take stock and think about, I think in any kind of difficult moment like this, the, the, the hardest and yet the most important thing to do is to sort of try to take stock of, okay, well, what can we learn from this that's positive? How do we move forward from this in a way that kind of answers the most important call and goal, which is to make the show great? And Netflix, to their credit, was really responsive. They really saw the potential. They really liked the property. They really wanted to make the show. And, you know, I think like any place, they wanted to put their own imprintur on it. But that was one that we embraced and and then and Meredith joined the show at that point and that was just an incredibly great moment and she and I sat down and we just instantly had such a rapport and such a connection about how we wanted to make the show and what we wanted it to be and it was kind of a renewal moment where we were able to take a bad experience and turn it into something good and then try to you know learn from the past experiences about how we could make the show better. So Meredith, for you coming over, what was the timing with that, with the end of Haunting of Hill House? We had uh, wrapped production on Haunting of Hill House when I was approached about this and they had already sold it to Netflix. And I read the comics and I was aware of all of the sort of backstory of the development process. And I read the comics and was completely fell in love with it and sat down with Carlton and immediately could feel that we had the same vision for it and was I was so excited by the stories. We were excited by the same stories um, and just felt that at Netflix it was going to have the best home, especially I had had such an incredible experience working with Netflix on The Haunting of Hill House and they embraced that show so fully that I felt that this was the right home for it and I felt like this was going to be a great partnership. And, and was someone's pitch to you, actually, we've got another haunted house show where there's deep grief and trauma. <laughs> that sounds right in your wheelhouse. Apparently that has become my brand, which I am perfectly comfortable with, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. But at the same time, it was really helpful to have worked on that show because tonally the show is, is very different, even though there's some obvious similarities. And so in a weird way, this felt like a breath of fresh air from what was such a dark, <laughs> a dark show that, you know, had moments of lightness and catharsis, but uh, that that darkness doesn't exist as much in Lock and Key. And, and it was also helpful to have it as a reference point because, you know, when we would have conversations with our production designer about what Key House should look like. We kept saying, it's not Hill House. <laughs> it's not Hill House. Um, and he got that totally. But, you know, Key House is a place that you should want to, Airbnb. Hill House, you should not ever Airbnb. Um, <laughs> if that's yeah. the takeaway from these yes. two series, you've done your job. Yes, yes. Yes, one-star reviews for Hill House across the board. But Key House, when you walk into it, you want it to feel warm, inviting. There's, you know, so much whimsy to it. Um, and, you know, our production designer put so much attention to detail and care into all of that. So it, it was it was really an asset, I think, that I had worked on that show before this, especially having two shows where the house is a 
very much a character. So I was excited to dive in, you know, for that reason. I can tell you're already tired of that answer in the press, though. No! The house is like another character No, it story. is. I was almost just about to say it. It's true. The house is a character. Yeah, it is. Well, we definitely saw the house as a character. In fact, we looked around at a lot of houses in Toronto where we were shooting the show, and we couldn't find anything that was even close to what we wanted. And fortunately, Netflix was willing to support us building the house, which we did about an hour outside of Toronto. We built the exterior and then we built the interior on stage so we could really make it what it needed to be because the house is a character in the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I do want to go back in, you know, and talk about, because Lock and Key has such an incredible history, 12 years in development, two different attempts at feature films, the Fox pilot, the Hulu pilot, you know, looking at some of these various incarnations that have existed over the years, Kurtzman couldn't do it, Josh Freeman couldn't do it. Obviously, you came close to Hulu, but what is it about this? Is it just that this is the wrong property at the wrong place at the wrong time? I think some of it was circumstantial. I think also the thing that's both attractive about the property is also what makes it difficult. It's that Joe Hill had this incredible amalgam of ideas. It's a fantasy show. It's a horror show. It's a murder mystery. Uh, there are magical keys. There's a teen drama. It, it There's a house a that's a character in the show, <laughs> a literal character in the show. And so it's like getting the cocktail of those ingredients right is hard. And I think that was the thing that Meredith and I spent a lot of time on was just trying to figure out the proportionality and the tone and, you know, it just took a while. And I think that was just, you know, trying to get all of those things in, but to find a way to unify them is just hard work. We think there needs to be a college course someday that takes all three versions and sort of dissects them because it's an amazing... I would enroll in that. Right? I mean, it's an amazing lesson in the idea that there's not one way to kind of skin a cat. It's not that there's anything wrong with the Josh Friedman version or the Hulu version. They're just different ways of telling the story. Um, And then I also want to take the class, which is all seven versions of Little Women. Oh, yeah. That would also be good. <laughs> I would sign up for that. But, too. Those, but those all made it onto screen, so it's a different kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm curious, sort of talking about tone, watching these episodes, it seems to go around in different directions in terms of the demo that it's aiming for. And I think that's sort of the challenge of the original property as well, is that there are parts where you think, okay, the, the focal character is Bodhi, this kid who's 10 years old. He's the eyes and ears. It's for kids. And then there's stuff that's very dark and very clearly not for kids. And then there's stuff that's for teens. How did you kind of balance who this was being made for? I mean, I think that we really made it for ourselves. And so that was, it's really hard to predict the audience. I think that Meredith and I were just like, what is the show that we most want to see? And so we wrote the show for ourselves. So I think some days we were probably our teen selves. Some days we were our mature adult selves. Some days we were our scary selves. I don't know. Um, I think that um, hopefully in the end, we've made a show that will be a co-viewing show. Is that the term, right? The, co- it's, it's and, the four uh, quadrant, yeah. The four quadrant co-viewing show. Every demo. I mean, we, which is a hard thing. I think there's a lot of incredible television right now, but a lot of it is niche television. And I think that, um, you know, hopefully this is a show that you can sit down and watch with your friends and family. And, you know, I, I don't know that it was intentional. I mean, really, as I said, we just, I think all we could, all we tried to do was make a show that we ourselves would enjoy watching. Mm-hmm. You know, when this did land at Netflix, they obviously, you know, you mentioned that they gave you some financial flexibility to build Key House. But how, what were the other fundamental changes from what you did for Hulu to what you, you wound up seeing on the screen with Netflix? 
you know, did Netflix come in and say, look, we have this, this huge hit, Stranger Things. We know that this is a four-quadrant co-viewing show. This is what we're looking for. What was that discussion like with Netflix? And what are some of the things that came, were the direct result of that conversation? They encourage us to highlight more of the teen stories, for sure. I know at Hulu, I wasn't a part of the Hulu version, but they were encouraged to lean more into the adult stories, which when you're telling a story about these kids who find magical keys and adults aren't actually, as part of the rule, able to experience that magic is quite difficult to tell a story that leans into the adults versus the kids. So they, you know, they were very much, you know, encouraged us to run with our own vision, but they really loved the kind of teen stories at the heart, the like stories like Kinsey, um, using the head key to remove her fear and getting to see her live fearlessly and how incredible that is and then how some bad things might happen and she'd have to learn that fear actually has a place in our lives. Stories like that were things that they were like, that is the that is the heart of we feel, and we agreed what the show should be. So those were some of the early conversations that, that we had with them about the different direction that it would sort of take. And also, as we mentioned, that the Hulu version was far more horror forward, like the first 15 minutes being the murder of Rendell, which is quite graphic in, in the Hulu version. It almost takes exact panels from Joe's script and, and recreates them. And our way of doing that is slightly different in that I think it's just as horrific. You're just not seeing as much and you're seeing it in sort of shards as opposed to in one big 15 minute kind of assault. And so those were some of the bigger changes that we made early on. I, I also wonder, Carlton, you've had shows at every level of platform, broadcast, basic cable, premium cable, now streaming, multiple streamings, Jack Ryan, so many other things. Would a show like Lock and Key exist on a linear outlet or does it belong on a streamer? I think it belongs on a streamer. I don't think actually it gets made or is particularly good or does well in a linear format. I mean, I think that one of the things that Netflix really also encouraged us to do was really lean into the trying to make it as bingeable as possible. And, you know, they they really wanted us to make it you know, just say like, you know, whenever you get to the end of an episode, make it impossible for someone to not go on to the next episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was actually kind of a good challenge for us. And and I think this story lends itself incredibly well to being binged. I'm not sure it lends itself as well to having a commercial break every nine minutes. And I, I don't even, you know, you're asking that question. I, I feel this in my gut. I don't know that I can actually articulate exactly why, but... It just felt so right when we finally got to Netflix about kind of all aspects of it. And um, yeah, I don't think it would work as well. I mean, I think it really is. It's. I, th- I feel like we're really lucky to be on Netflix at this perfect moment in time when, you know, they, they're doing incredibly well. And also when these kinds of shows seem to be doing well for them. And yet one thing I noticed is that after the first episode, which is around 56 minutes, the next couple really go down to like 43, 44 and on Haunting of Hill House, you had episodes that went long. I think there was at least one that was 70, 75 minutes. Why did you feel like sort of it was important to keep these episodes tight in addition to bingeable, I guess? 
Uh, well, you know, part of it is just financial. I mean, we were, you know, we want, we wanted to make the show at a high quality bar, and so it's like if you divide the amount of money you have over the amount of minutes that you shoot an episode, um, you know, we thought we would make the episodes shorter so that we'd have more money to spend on them. And it's also like a lot of the visual effects are really expensive and complicated, and so you know, we just tried to we tried to allocate our resources in a way where what we were putting on screen was you know, as good as we could make it. And, and so we felt like if we shorted the episodes down, which just gave us more time to do what we were going to do well. Yeah, there's such a momentum, I think, to the show, especially when you get into episodes, when you get into later episodes, that it just, Joe Hills described it as TV crack, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the pilot is longer because there's a lot to set up in the pilot. So by nature, it's going to be longer. And then the haunting needed to be longer because, you know, Mike really wanted to leave room for to create the tension. It's just that's kind of the vibe he was going for. So I think that our show is it's the strength that our show is that, that the episodes are more in the sort of mid 40 range. And I mean this honestly, Haunting of Hill House was one of the few Netflix shows where I didn't feel like the Netflix bloat was unnecessary, where I actually was like, okay, this one might as well be 58 minutes. And I feel like there are a lot of shows on Netflix or Hulu and other stations where it goes a little long. Yeah. Is Netflix bloat like a term now? That, it's one that I yeah. use, but I but it's just as much HBO bloat at this right. point also. Or FX bloat. They long and long. I think, you know, that's a fair comment. And that's something that we were also aware of that we didn't, you know, we want, we were pretty rigorous about you know, the fact that you can sort of make an episode as long as you want on streaming. We didn't want to just do that. So we really, you know, we benefited from giving ourselves more resources by making the episode shorter, but we also really tried to make sure that we were cutting away the bloat. <laughs> Let's talk about how close the show adheres to the source material. Every time I talk about Walking Dead, you know, there's obviously a decade plus of source material there. With this, Joe's source material, I keep saying source material, I'm just gonna say it one more time, source material. Um, <laughs> It's not a big property, right? It's obviously very sprawling, but there's not nearly 200 issues of it. I'm botching this question. But my whole question, my whole question here ultimately boils down to is how close do you adhere to it? Is it more of a remix? How many seasons do you have in mind? I mean, I've heard that season one covers a lot of the first several books. Yes. I think a remix is an interesting way to describe it. I mean, certainly the major plot points of the series, books one through six, we hit many of them. Sometimes we arrive at them in different ways. Um, and there are still stories left in the comic that we know we want to tell in future seasons. But when we first sat down to talk about what we loved from the comic and what we would want to see in the first season, you know, we loved the story of the mystery surrounding Rendell's death and how our kids might investigate that, for lack of a better word, because it makes it sound like it's a procedural, which it's not. Um, but learn, discover more about him through the discovery of these keys and how that might inform not only their feelings about their father, but also how they're going to combat this demonic presence that is now terrorizing them. So that was really, once we had the bones of that, like, oh, that's kind of the through line of the season. And also watching them learn that they are going to become the new keepers of the keys and embrace that role by the end. And then let season two be, okay, now that we've embraced that, what does that actually mean? Like, what does that, how does, with great power comes great responsibility. Looking at how long you see the show running, obviously there's more from the comics that you want to explore, but, you know, Netflix has a penchant for canceling shows after three, <laughs> maybe four seasons. So very few live beyond that. So knowing that that's where, at the home that you're at, how are you approaching Lock and Key? Uh, 
That is a really good question. Uh, this we story are, cannot end badly, considering no, the road that it took to get here. I know, this. I know. That may work out for us. I'm, I mean, we're writing season two right now. We obviously we don't have a pickup, but, but they've greenlit a writer's room. And so we're working on that. I think by the time we get to the end of season two, we'll have a pretty good idea of what it is. And, you know, maybe it's four seasons. I mean, that that sort of feels like that might be right for this. A lot of what's in season two is invented, but it's all on the axis of stuff that's in the comic books. Um, as I said, I think by the time we get through the end of the season, we'll have a better sense of how much story we have left to tell. And I don't, yeah, I don't think that we, either of us imagine this as being like The Walking Dead, where we're doing lock and key 11 years from now. Um, that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like there's, it holds that much story. And um, so it may, it may be that, Maybe it's that our timing and Netflix's timing works out. Well, Meredith, you've mentioned uh, Joe Hill a couple times. What has his involvement been? What is he precious about in this text? And what has he given you guys free reign on? He's been very involved and an amazing collaborator and partner with us from the beginning. Um, you know, he co-wrote the pilot episode. Uh, in the pilot episode, we introduced two brand new keys which we all collaborated on along with the direct, our director, Michael Morris. So I wouldn't describe him as precious at all. I mean, obviously, he's incredibly engaged in, in what we're doing. But in every, every time we've made you know, a, a change, he's really embraced it. And as he's said that if we tried to do a literal adaptation of his comic, that would be boring. And then he says it needs to be an adaptation, not a translation. And so he's really embraced that. And, you know, it's amazing to have him as a resource. You know, if we're in the writer's room talking about, well, actually, how did, how did one of these keys actually get made? We can just pick up the phone and call him and say, well, so how, how were the keys made? And let me tell you, he has an answer just like right away. He knows exactly how the keys were made. He has, a, you know, encyclopedic knowledge of his own world that he's created. So it's incredible to be able to just have that and call him. Um, and so his participation in the show has been vital to it. So he's very much, we consider him a partner. Now, Carlton, what is your eagerness on a project like this to start going down mythological wormholes? Or <laughs> is it something you're like, Not yes, high. let's do this again? Or no, never again. It is really, it is really not high. No. Um, the good thing is, yes, there is a mystery that is in the at the center of the um, story, but it's a very explainable mystery that has, oh, <laughs> that has a very that has a very concrete, uh, non existential answer. So that's good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's fun to. It feels like a very different set of creative muscles doing this show than Lost. And um, I think that the the genre mashup elements are somewhat the same. I mean, Lost was an amalgam of different genres and this is two and that part I like. But the, um, and the, the, the other thing that's great is Joe Hill has really done a lot of the heavy lifting. I mean, he built this mythology and allowed us to play in his sandbox. And as Meredith said, he's been incredibly generous and really participatory in us expanding this out. And it's been, it's been really fun to have a chance to, to do that. Uh, you know, we always talk about loss. I think it always comes down um, in every interview that we do. <laughs> the influence of that show on your career and the influence of the show on the TV landscape. I mean, do you think that, that a world like Lock and Key coming to television would happen were it not for Lost paving the way to, to show that shows like this can work? I mean, I, that's, that's, you know, it's hard to ascribe 
you know, credit for genre to Locke in and of itself, I mean, to Lost in and of itself. Um, I think that uh, it was, it certainly was a positive influence. And as someone who's always been a fan of genre, it was great to see that Lost opened up the doors for a lot of other genre shows. But I think probably the changing formats of television, the number of increasing outlets, the fact that you, know, you had all these different platforms where you know we're making shows that probably is more responsible for there being genre programming but that's exciting i mean uh, that's the stuff that both meredith and i really like and that's the stuff that you know i like to make so would you reboot lost for a streamer Che? you knew this question was coming, <laughs> you know it was coming. no uh i remain damon and i both remain steadfast that we're not gonna do it again um and that's Great. You know, I, I think that we both have other stuff that we're interested in. And as we've said before, somebody else might come along who's got a really good idea to do something in the lost world. And and if, you know, Disney wants to do that with them, we, you know, we would be fine with that. You know, I, I do want to talk a little bit. You mentioned Damon, but your son, Nick, was just a writer on Watchmen. And now Damon is also and I presume Nick is in this situation where everyone myself included and i think i speak for yeah. dan too wants more watchmen but yet now it's <laughs> sure, kind of not? in the scenario of well we've told the story that we want to tell so if you think that my son has is a way for me to get more to to sort of influence the process and get more watchmen no unfortunately <laughs> not uh I, I wish there was more Watchmen, too, but despite my great friendship with Damon and my son being a writer on the show, I have no pull to make that happen. So Have you and your son gotten to talk about the experiences of working with Damon and how that, that oh, compared? Oh, of course. I mean, it's it's an incredible thing. It's really hard to explain, you know, the sort of the pride I feel, you know, as a, as a parent seeing my son sort of become a full-fledged wonderful writer and you know i mentored damon and then damon mentored nick and that's just an incredible you know the sort of playing of that forward has just been you know one of the great experiences of my life now i know that this is probably a junkie question that you guys have had to answer a half dozen times today but i still want to know anyway uh for a show like this which key would be your favorite key that you'd actually want to use and which key would you never want to go anywhere near oof I assume they've been asked that five times uh, today. We well, no, the, second, asked, the second part we have not been asked. Yeah, okay. we've been which asked is, which key would we want to the use. The cautionary tale. Which one would you not want? Because I All think right. that to me is much more relevant here is which one, if someone told you this key can do this, would you be like, no, I have absolutely no desire whatsoever to do well, that? Well, I'm not really. Yeah, I would say the matchstick key. I mean, I first of all, I do a lot of hiking in the hills, and so it would be very dangerous to have the matchstick key. I don't want to set anything on fire. I don't. I have no real interest in setting anything on fire. That's uh, that's. <laughs> That one is definitely, nah, it's just, it's not like, it's a, not a cautionary tale. It's just not, you know, something that excites me. I think for me, it would be the crown of shadows, which is, uh, you would want to do that. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to do that. I would not want, to, you should never let me anywhere near the crown of shadows. Cause I have terrible road rage. And so I feel like I would use, be flipping cars. I would use those shadows to do my bidding in negative ways if I were in a moment of road rage. Yeah. I just have this picture, <laughs> have this picture of these cars going down with all these exactly. shadows on the side of yeah. the car, giving yeah. the finger to that other drivers. That would be exactly right? what would happen. Yeah. yeah. Or so, flipping over other yeah. cars. So that's one of those that I would never, you should never hand me a crown shadows. <laughs> And what was the answer for the one that you guys would actually want to use? I would want to use the head key. Okay. As terrifying as it would be to uh, see what's inside my own head, I think it would be pretty amazing to be able to revisit 
old memories of just like proms and 13 year old birthday parties at bowling alleys things like that i think that that i would really enjoy that i'm having bad flashbacks right now now. (laughs) whose idea was the uh the revision of the visualization of the head key from not being the sort of shot sawed off head tops i mean i mean meredith and i spent a lot of time talking about that i mean that just seemed impossible that just seemed gross and like not doable in television and as cool as gabriel's splash panels are it was just like that's just not achievable so then we spent a lot of time i would say that was the thing we spent the most time talking about and that was the thing you know when you when you sort of approach a project and you sort of you look at like well what are the stress points what are those things that are going to be really hard to solve and this was like okay we have to really get figure out how to do this in a way that's going to be cool like how are we going to take the going into people's heads and so we came up with this idea of like let's try to do it metaphorically let's try to make these experiences really you know mirror what these characters are like so when we go in their heads that there's a little bit of a reflection of who they are as characters I do want to ask, because I'm so fascinated by the overall deals space, Carlton, you you came back to ABC Studios right before the boom, you know, right before Shonda and Ryan really changed the landscape with these big nine-figure deals. What do you think of... I mean, <laughs> I, I realized I could have phrased that a little bit better, but I mean, it's That's okay. I, We're only on the second floor. I can't, I, if I jump out the window, I won't, I'll probably oh just God. injure myself. That's all. <laughs> Please don't do that. Um, but like looking at the, at the landscape, I mean, what do you think of it? Can this sustain itself? I mean, it's kind of like baseball free agency, right? Uh, that goes in waves. So two years ago, I, see, now we're going to go down the baseball rabbit hole. So two years ago, not a lot of free agent deals. This year, a lot of free agent deals. I think it will ebb and flow. And right now it's completely, you know, it's understandable because you have all these different streaming services that are starting up and, you know, everybody's trying to grab proven talent. And so the the marketplace has been great for that. You know, whether it sustains will be... It's kind of a question mark. Yeah. And one of the things that I think you do well, and I think Meredith, I'd love for you to speak to this too, is you help a lot of rising writers really find voices and and elevate them. And because so much of what you do is in collaboration. That's how I like to work. I mean, I think there's this kind of myth of um, the creative figure being a single solitary person. And in fact, if you really analyze a lot of the great accomplishments in the world, they were done, you know, in collaboration, done by duos, you know, done in this process. And it's just how I like to work. And, you know, um, I, the thing that gets me up and makes me excited every day to go to work is, you know, working with Meredith to solve the problems of making the show. I mean, that's the thing that's really exciting. It's also to have someone in your corner during the hard times when, when there's a problem to solve, someone that you can turn to at like, you know, 1am the morning before you have to shoot something and be like, this sucks. Like, what do we do? You know? And so it's not all on your shoulders. And so, yeah, I've only run shows with partners and, it's not to say that I wouldn't ever run a show by myself, but I enjoy the collaboration so much. It's pretty great. And just our standard last question that we ask everyone, what are you guys watching on TV and enjoying? Cheer. <laughs> Isn't it fantastic? It is so fantastic. But I, only six episodes. I know. I, I'm sure there's going to be a second season. I'm just I'm loving it so much, and it's totally changing my view on professional cheerleading, and I never thought I'd say that. Uh, and just the sort of characters are just Did you have a view amazing. on professional cheerleading you know, before? I think I did. <laughs> okay. I think I did have a view on it. And okay. I think that I probably put them into a box that are a cliche, and that is actually what the they, they speak to that in the documentary about, like, most people think that cheerleaders are dumb blondes. And, but then when you actually see 
what they put their bodies through. And uh, it's, I mean, it really is a sport. It's, I think it's an incredible documentary. So that's what I'm about halfway through and I'm, I can't wait to go home and watch no more. No spoilers. Yes. Um, for me, it's, I guess it's Abstract, which is this uh, non-scripted show on uh, Netflix that's basically looking at designers and the process of creation and design. And it's a really, it's a wonderful it's actually a show about the creator process, even though it's you know interviewing people who are making sneakers or building buildings or you know de- designing various things, and it's kind of a, it's really interesting. It's an it's a really interesting examination of the creator process. Look at you guys both going with Netflix shows I know. <laughs> on brand. Well, <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank, thank you guys. Thank, thank guys. you. Lock and Key season one is now streaming on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week, Hulu launches Zoe Kravitz-led reboot of High Fidelity, which was originally developed for Disney+. The streamer also has Utopia Falls. Apple TV Plus has LGBTQ docuseries Visible out on television, which looks promising, at least from my vantage point. The new season of my mom's favorite show, Outlander, debuts on Stars. Epics debuts Slow Burn. And Last Week Tonight with John Oliver returns on HBO. As for NBC, Good Girls is back with its third season. Dan, lots to choose from this week. What you got? There's definitely a lot to choose from. And uh, as always, of that group, my favorite thing is probably Last Week Tonight. And it's good to have Last Week Tonight back, just like it's good to have Jesus and Marrow back on, on Showtime. There are a lot of these shows that I kind of rely on to help me center my life. And when they're not on, it becomes complicated. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. Um, Our colleague Ingu Kang did not love High Fidelity. I Uh, did, however, for whatever that's worth, my non-critical opinion. (laughs) That's still a critical opinion, just not from a critic. Uh, Yes, and lots of people did. Uh, Hopefully we will be having Ingu in on next week's podcast uh, so that our listeners can meet her because she's awesome. I think I liked it a little bit more. I've only seen about half of the first season. I don't know that I necessarily fully get what they think they've accomplished with the gender and racial reversal of of the Nick Hornby book in the movie. But I'm curious, and this is definitely the most I've liked Zoe Kravitz as a lead. I've always been sort of tepid on her, and I think this is a really good vehicle for her. But I, I, the three leads actually are, are all pretty great. They're all they're all good. I, I have to admit, though, I was watching these episodes, and a lot of it is direct address to the camera and breaking the fourth wall and stuff. And I thought much like and, the movie. But I thought over and over again, okay, we had a a gender reversed version of High Fidelity. Basically, it was called Fleabag, and it was significantly better than this. Um, so this is the part of the podcast where you yell at me for not having seen Fleabag yet. It's okay. Well, I mean, it's not really okay. You should definitely. I started seen... cheer. That, that counts for something, right? It counts for something. Sure. Absolutely. And you watched Rami. So anyway, yes. So that's that's High Fidelity. I think some people will like it. And there are definitely things to like about it. A killer soundtrack, too. Naturally. Very, very good soundtrack. Speaking of good soundtracks, also on Hulu, Utopia Falls is a hip hop YA thing it's not really very good but it does have a great soundtrack of kind of decade bridging hip-hop hits basically from from the early days in the bronx uh uh, lampin and all that to more contemporary hip-hop but really it's not a very good show and unless you are a really really big fan of very young skewing ya i mean this is more divergent than it is uh hunger games probably not necessary i am a big fan and continue to be a big fan of nbc's good girls 
which is just a wonderful ensemble. The ensemble with Retta, Christina Hendricks, and Mae Whitman. It's just fun to watch them all acting together. And the show itself doesn't necessarily always know what it wants to be. Sometimes it's a little bit more cable than NBC is willing to let it go. But watching those three stars together is is just a, a simple pleasure. And I, I like that this is a show that exists and continues to exist, even if there may be better shows. And if you happen to be someone who just can't get enough of impeachment-based coverage and and you wish to go back to an OG impeachment that never actually happened, uh, Epix's Slow Burn, based on the popular podcast, is in many ways similar to the podcast, but it does have a lot of fresh interviews. So if you are like me and you've seen All the President's Men a hundred times and you listen to the Slow Burn podcast and all of that, there's enough that's new and different in these six hours that it's probably worth watching. But yeah, so that that should pretty much keep everyone busy for a while. No one should be complaining about the lack of television. Yeah, well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by David Weil, the showrunner behind Amazon's Al Pacino drama Hunters. Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, how about writing a little review thing? It helps spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter, where we are happy to hear your questions, comments, and concerns. But seriously, maybe try to keep it to comments and concerns, because if you have questions for future mailbag segments, we would love to get them. And you can reach us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Happy Valentine's Day, Dan. I choo-choo choose you, Leslie. Aww. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.